Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Last week, when we were considering the first part of this chapter, we saw that it is especially instruction in how God wants us to live. There's an emphasis in those verses, especially on sober-mindedness and, of course, on godliness in a general sense. But the uh, point that the Apostle Paul is making in those verses is that we need to live in a way which is proper for sound doctrine. And what we're looking at in verses 11 to 14 today is the summary of that sound doctrine that is the foundation of sober-mindedness and godly living. And the summary of sound doctrine is essentially this, that our great God and Savior gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify us. We're going to consider these um, verses under the theme grace that teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly. And we're going to consider, first of all, that grace as it's described in verse 14. Then we're going to consider the manifestation of that grace. And then finally, what that grace of God teaches us. So we're starting with verse 14 and the description of the grace of God that we find there. We're including in verse 14 the last phrase of verse 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we see there in those uh, last, last part of the passage three things. First of all, a description of our Savior given to us in the names here. Secondly, what our Savior has done. He gave himself for us. And thirdly, the purpose for which he did it, to purify, to redeem us, and to purify for himself his own special people. So we're going to look at each of those things in turn. First of all, of course, we have the description of our Savior, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We noticed in the introduction to the book, that uh, Paul says several times in this book both that God is our Savior and that Christ is our Savior. And that each time these two uh, statements occur, they occur in close proximity to each other. So you find it first in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. That verse ends... Verse 3 ends, according to the commandment of God our Savior. And then verse 4, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. You find it again in chapter 3, verses 4 and 6. Verse 4, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And then in verse 6, whom he, that is referring to the Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
You have the two occurrences in chapters 1 and 3, but you have it here in uh, chapter 2 as well. At the end of verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And then at the end of verse 13, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul adds here, though, to that description of Christ as our Savior, is that he is the great God. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says then explicitly here in verse 13 that Christ is God. It could hardly be more plain or more clear than that. He is God. Not only is he God, but he is the great God. He's not just a God. He is not like God, but he is the great God. When you uh, look at that phrase, that name really, for God, you find that it occurs in a number of passages in both Old and New Testaments. And I want to look at just a couple of them. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 21, for example, Deuteronomy 7, verse 21. We have uh, these words, You shall not be terrified of them that is of your enemies, for your, the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. So uh, Moses is in fact emphasizing there the greatness of God and the Uh, greatness of God which exceeds the power of Israel's enemies. Also in Psalm 95 verse 3 Psalm 95 verse 3 there's a call to praise there in that early part of the psalm and one of the reasons for praise is given in verse 3 for the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He is the great God and the great king above all gods. There are other passages in the Old Testament too, and you can look those up for yourself if you are interested in finding how many times that is used in the Old Testament and in what different contexts it can be found. But let's refer to just one more in the New Testament this time. Revelation 19, verse 17. Revelation 19, verse 17. Where we have these words. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. So it's very clearly then a name for the God of Israel, the great God. And in fact, it's a name that really sets God apart, the great God of Israel, apart from the gods of the nations. You saw that especially in Psalm 95. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He's a God above all gods. He is God of gods. He is uh, the God who lives. He is the God who exists. He is the God who 
has powerfully redeemed his people. He is the God who has done all the things to the nations around which those nations attributed to their gods. And it is of that God then that Paul says in Titus 2, our Lord Jesus Christ is the great God. That is, he is the God of gods. He is the one who is a great king above all gods. It's a deliberate contrasting of our Lord Jesus Christ then as God with the gods of the nations around. But he is also Savior. God is our Savior in Jesus Christ. Christ himself is our Savior because he is the great God. But he is our Savior in the broadest possible sense. I think we have to take that word salvation in the broadest possible way here. That is, he is our Savior from sin and death and the power of Satan. But he's also our Savior from all the consequences of sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin in the beginning, then Adam and Eve brought on us all the miseries, all the tears, all the trials, all the troubles, all the sicknesses of this present time. And when we speak of Christ as Savior, we mean that he saves us not only from sin and death and the power of Satan, but that he saves us also from all the consequences of sin, all sickness, all trouble, all trials, all temptations, everything that belongs to this life of misery here in the world. And ultimately, his salvation means that he wipes every tear from our eyes. That's what it means when the scriptures call him Savior. He is also Jesus. That is, <coughs> Yahweh saves. He is the God of Israel who gives salvation to his people. And he is Christ, the one anointed by God to the office of mediator, appointed for that work of salvation. To be the prophet of his people in revealing to them the whole counsel and will of God. To be their priest in offering himself as the sacrifice for their sins and making intercession for them from the right hand of God to be their king, to rule them by his word and by his grace until he brings them into his everlasting kingdom of righteousness. So that's the first thing that the text says about this grace of God, that this grace is in Jesus Christ, the great God and Savior. Now the second thing that Verse 14 says about him is what he has done for us. He gave himself for us. That's a very simple statement, just a few words. But it's an exceedingly profound statement. He gave himself. Think of all that is implied in that, those words. He gave himself. He gave himself to his incarnation, to the humiliation of coming into our flesh. He gave himself to the sufferings that he endured throughout his earthly life, and especially in the years of his ministry. He gave himself to 
be crucified. He gave himself to be dead and buried. Philippians 2, of course, puts it uh, very uh, emphatically for us. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's his giving himself. It is the ultimate giving. A giving that is so astonishing and so great a thing that it is wholly beyond our conception, beyond our imagination to think that he would give himself in that fashion. And then you have that prepositional phrase, again, a very short phrase for us, just two words, but that prepositional phrase contains in it the whole doctrine of substitutionary atonement. He gave himself for us. He put himself in our place under the judgment of God. He bore all the wrath of God on our behalf. He took that wrath of God down upon his own head and suffered himself to endure that wrath unto death for us in order that he might accomplish our atonement. So that's the second thing. He is our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us. And then finally we have here his purpose in giving himself for us. There are two things that are said there, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and that he might purify for himself his people, zealous for good works. Let's start with that, to redeem us from every lawless deed. We are doers of lawless deeds. We have become by nature, in fact, lawless, given over to lawlessness. And what that lawlessness means, of course, is that we not only transgress the law, but we reject the law. We do not want any part of the law. We uh, drive the law away from ourselves. We drive the law out of our consciences. We suppress that law. We excuse ourselves from obedience to the law and excuse our transgressions against the law. We are lawless people. As lawless spiritually as the greatest criminals in society are lawless in our own times. But our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us. That is, to take us out of that lawlessness, from that bondage of sin and death, and to bring us into his glorious liberty. And that word redemption, of course, implies the whole work of Christ in paying the ransom price necessary for our redemption as a 
man in those days might have to pay the ransom price to free a slave from his slavery, so Christ has paid the ransom price for us to be delivered from our slavery to sin and lawlessness. It's Peter who uh, describes the, the price of that redemption in the first chapter of his first epistle, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. pages here seem to be stuck together okay first Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot that's the price he paid for our redemption that's the first purpose then he has giving up himself for us, to redeem us from our lawless deeds, from every lawless deed, actually, Paul says. So that ultimately there is no lawless deed that finds a place in us anymore. And then in the second place, his purpose was to purify for himself his own special people. And again, notice how rich that statement is. First of all, we have that word purify, which contains in it the whole doctrine of our sanctification and the whole process of that sanctification. And that process of sanctification has, begins with our regeneration, the giving of new life so that we may be able again to obey the commandments of God. The daily work of God through Christ and by his word and spirit to purify our lives of sin so that we mortify the old man and put on the new man. And ultimately the glorification of our souls at death and the glorification of our bodies in the last day. This is all included in that word purifying. And you see too that what Paul is doing here then as he talks first about redemption and purification that he talks about the two sides of our salvation. The work that Christ does for us, redemption, and the work he does in us, purification. The work that we call justification on the one hand, and the work that we call sanctification on the other hand. Removing our guilt, and then removing also the corruption of our sins. So he embraces in those two words, the uh, two sides of our salvation, and therefore all of our salvation. But he goes on beyond that as well. He says in the second place, in that second uh, statement of purpose, that he purifies for himself. He purifies us for himself. He wants us as his own. And we cannot be his own as we are. We're corrupt and he is holy. We are filled with sin, and he is the spotless and blameless one. He is the holy God, before whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. He is the one whose holiness 
is unbearable in its brightness to us who are sinners. And this one then cannot live with us as we are. He wants us, however, for himself. He wants us as his own. And so he purifies us for himself. In the third place, notice in that statement that he, Paul does not just simply say he purifies us, but he purifies a people, his own people. He does not purify a group of individuals, but he purifies a people. He calls out of the whole human race a people for himself that he makes his own and unites them to himself to make them members of his body and members, therefore, also of one another. He makes of these uh, individuals who are lost in corruption and in sin, then, his holy body, his holy church. And, finally, that he purifies us so that we may be zealous for good works. There's a secondary purpose here in this clause. If the first purpose of his uh, giving himself is to purify us, that the purpose of his purifying us is so that we may be zealous for good works. Now a couple of things about that. First of all, the word good here is the word which really means noble. There are two words that are translated good in Titus as well as in the New Testament. And this is the one that really means noble. He purifies us so that we may be zealous for noble works. But also, notice that he doesn't just say that so that we may do good works, but so that we may be zealous for good works. He so purifies us that he creates in us a passion for doing these noble, these good works to which he calls us. He makes us desire them. He makes us long for them. He makes us seek them. He fixes our hearts and minds upon his righteous commandments. Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. It is my meditation all the day. So you have here, in in those few words of verse 14, a very compressed, a very brief summary, but a very powerful summary of that grace of God which has been revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the great God, Christ our Savior. He has given himself for us. And by his giving, he redeems us and purifies us for himself. so that we may be zealous for good works. But now let's look in the second place at the manifestation of the grace of God. And that we find in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared or has been manifested to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has been manifested to all men. Now, Paul does not mean 
here by that word manifestation, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation. You can speak, I think, of the incarnation as a manifestation of God's grace. There's nothing unbiblical about that, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here at all. He's not talking about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, in his incarnation and his earthly ministry, in order to manifest the grace of God in that way. What Paul is talking about here is the manifestation of Christ in the preaching of the gospel. The grace of God that brings salvation has been manifested in the preaching of the gospel to all men. He takes us back, really, in a sense, to verses uh, 1 and following of chapter 4, when he says in verse 3 especially, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. The manifestation of the grace of God then is in the preaching of the gospel. And I think uh, Galatians 3 uses uh, a similar kind of language. Not the same words as we find here, but nevertheless similar language. Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. For the apostle says to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you. That's what Paul's talking about here in that manifestation. Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you. The grace of God has been manifested, therefore, as the preaching of the gospel has set before you Christ crucified. But in the second place, he says, that grace has been manifested to all men. And there he uh, points us to the great change from Old Testament to New Testament. The grace of God was manifested especially to the Jews in the Old Testament. And even our Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry refused sometimes to speak to Gentiles because he was ministering to the Jews. And he sent his twelve apostles to the lost sheep of the house of Israel during the years of his earthly ministry. But after he had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God to be king over all nations, king of kings and lord of lords, he sent his apostles out to manifest him to all nations, to all men, all peoples of the world. This is that grace then that is manifested both to Jew and Gentile throughout the whole of the New Testament period. Then finally in that verse, that grace we find, which is here a kind of synonym for the preaching of the gospel, the grace of God has appeared, has been manifested to all men. That grace teaches us. That brings us to our third point. The grace of God teaches us. Now, it's interesting that Paul 
says it that way. The grace of God teaches us. Not the word of God teaches us. Not the preaching of the gospel teaches us. But the grace of God teaches us. And what he means then is that description of the grace of God, which you find, which we've talked about already, in verse 14. That's the grace of God. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for us for himself. It's that grace of God in Jesus Christ manifested in the preaching of the gospel that teaches us that grace then precedes and is the fountain and the teacher of this godly way of living that Paul describes in verses 12 and 13. Three things belong to that uh, uh, way, that way of that godly way of living, what grace teaches us. The first is denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Ungodliness is living without God. Living without acknowledging God. Living without serving God. Living without praising and loving God. Worldly lusts, I think we should say a little bit more about that. Lusts, of course, we think of lusts as, as uh, uh, illicit desires, unlawful desires. And that's right, that's what it means. The word is sometimes used, however, in the uh, New Testament in a positive way there, and is translated as desire sometimes. You can have positive uh, godly desires, and you can have ungodly desires. Paul is talking about those ungodly desires here. But it's the word that he uses to describe them, worldly, which is of particular interest here. What that word means is really desires or lusts that belong to this world. We kind of take worldly as a synonym for ungodly, and really it's a little bit different than that. Desires for things of this world. And when he speaks, therefore, of worldly lusts, he's talking about those lusts, those desires that we have that have their limits, their boundaries, at the edges of this world. They do not go beyond this world. They are limited to the scope of this world and the things of this world. And there are, of course, lawful things in this world that we may desire. We desire uh, a spouse. We desire children. We desire uh, friends. We desire a Work, we desire food for our daily living. We have love for many earthly things. But what Paul is doing is he's taking all those desires which may in certain contexts and in certain ways be lawful desires and he's saying to us if those desires have as their boundary, as their limit, the things of this world, 
Then they are worldly lusts. Because all our desires, of course, have to be subject to the great desire for God. Love God is the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself is the second commandment. And any desire, any coveting, any love which breaks that fundamental order of things that God has established, whether it's a lawful love in itself or not, any love which breaks that order is a worldly lust, a lust that limits itself to the things of this world, that puts God in the wrong place or out of place altogether. Paul is then speaking in the same kind of way that David talks in Psalm 14 when he prays at the end, Psalm 17 rather, when he prays at the end of that, Psalm, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword, with your hand for men, O Lord, for men of the world. Notice that word world there, for men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They fill their bellies, and they're satisfied. They are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possession for their babes. All their desires, all their ambitions, all their uh, longings are confined to this world. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he speaks of worldly lusts. Lusts that confine themselves merely to the things of this world. And what he's saying to us is that we have to deny those worldly lusts. And we should be like David as he describes himself in the next verse in Psalm 17. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. (coughs) So that's the denying of worldly lusts. The second part of what the grace of God teaches us is that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Again, that word soberly means sober-mindedly. It's that word we keep coming across here in Titus. With right thinking, with sane thinking, thinking that's governed by the Word of God in all its aspects. In the second place, he says righteously, and that means according to the righteous law that God has given. And thirdly, he says godly. We should live godly. And that means, of course, the very opposite of that ungodliness that we mentioned earlier. In verse 12, we deny ungodliness and we live godly. That is, we live towards God, unto God, for God, with God in all our thoughts, with piety and with reverence, with love for God, as he has commanded us. And we do all three of these things then. We live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. No matter how corrupt, no matter how wicked, no matter how troubled it is, no matter how difficult it is for us, in this present age in which we live, we live soberly, righteously, 
and godly. The grace of God teaches us to live that way. Those two things are the two sides of our sanctification, aren't they? Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, putting off the old man, and living soberly, righteously, and godly, putting on the new man. The rejection of sin, the adoption and pursuit of righteousness, living antithetically, saying no to sin, and saying yes to righteousness and to God himself. And then all of this, this living soberly, righteously and godly, and denying ungodliness and worldly lust, while we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have our eyes fixed on things to come. This is what motivates us to deny worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Our life is not here. Our desires are not here in this world. We have a hope that goes beyond this world. The hope of everlasting life. A blessed hope. We have a hope that our Lord Jesus Christ will come again. And that he will appear and we shall see him as he is. And when we see him as he is, we shall be like him in that very act of seeing. That hope then motivates us. That hope manifested and being manifested even more gloriously in the future moves us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly. So the sound doctrine which Paul says teaches us that there's a proper way to live, a way to live in accordance with that doctrine. The great God and our Savior has given himself to redeem us from sin slavery and to purify us for himself, to make us fit for and zealous for good works. And that grace of God teaches us to live then according to the purpose for which our Savior gave himself and with the hope that he will perfect the work that he has begun in us. May God bless us with his word.